University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pareso. This is the third and final bonus episode that we recorded this summer. Today's guests are University of Chicago political science professors Dr. Austin Carson and Dr. Paul Staniland. Dr. Carson researches the politics of secrecy in conflict. He recently published his first book, Secret Wars, Covert Conflict in International Politics. Dr. Staniland is the faculty chair of the university's Committee on International Relations, as well as the co-director of the Program on International Security Policy and Program on Political Violence. His research focuses on political violence and international security, particularly in South Asia. He is the author of Networks of Rebellion, Explaining Insurgent Cohesion and Collapse. They join us today to discuss Dr. Carson's book on military secrecy and covert operations, civil-military relations around the world, and how studying international politics can shed light on American civil-military affairs. Dr. Paul Staniland and Dr. Austin Carson, thanks so much for joining us on Thank You for Your Service. We really appreciate you taking the time. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Totally our pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) So for our listeners who aren't aware, we were wondering if you could describe what your research interests are. Sure, I'll start. Um, So all of my research has something to do with secrecy and the way governments manage information and perceptions of their behavior in the international system. Um, So the first book that I wrote was on covert forms of military intervention and intelligence gathering and information about those interventions. More recent projects have looked at everything from what a government like the United States does with its intelligence about nuclear weapons programs abroad to a project on intelligence material that goes to the president, specifically the president's daily brief, which is a new project I'm working on. So I work on kind of a mix of international relations and civil war, political violence stuff uh, with a focus on South Asia. So my first book was on insurgent groups, kind of how they pull together, why they fall apart, why some, even though they look similar than to others, are better able to remain cohesive and organized over time. I'm trying to finish a book right now that looks at how governments respond to different kinds of armed groups, uh, how they decide who to fight with, who to work with, who to kind of ignore, or just kind of keep an eye on rather than crushing. And then I have uh, a bunch of other projects related to these kinds of topics, international relations, foreign policy, political violence, uh, mostly in South Asia, so India, Pakistan, Burma, Sri Lanka in particular. So Dr. Carson, you recently came out with a new book, Secret Wars, Covert Conflict in International Politics. We were wondering if you could talk a little bit about what inspired this work, um, how you got into it, and how you went about doing your research for this book. Sure. Um, So I think a lot of the inspiration for the book was my own experience in Washington, D.C. as a low-level, bottom-of-the-totem-pole think tank research assistant in the early 2000s. And I was there during the Bush administration in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. 
and witnessed firsthand um i was outside of government but but in the beltway and very much in the in the mix of the conversation witnessed the importance of um, intelligence and intelligence-based claims for the administration's justification and more generally was just immersed in what i felt like was the everyday nitty-gritty of foreign policy in the united states which is a lot of image management and shaping perceptions and framing policy issues in ways that are in u.s interests so when i came to graduate school i felt like there was a large sort of gap between what i was reading in the literature and what my sort of gut said matters in at least in, in my experience and so that that gave me a sort of general interest in intelligence issues secrecy and how um, governments uh, strategically manage information and perceptions the specific idea for the book came um, from a sort of lucky uh, coincidence of first learning about the anecdote that opens the book, which is the secret Soviet participation in the Korean War. And at the same time, um, and, and this reflects one of the great things about training at Ohio State University, where I did my doctorate at that time, at the same time reading sociologist Irving Goffman's stuff on, on how um, individuals and groups sort of collectively manage one another's impressions. And I saw some sort of, I felt like there was some family resemblance there. Um, and that was sort of the nub of the idea. And I kind of went from there. Talk about that. What do you mean by family resemblance? Um, well, what it most, most important is that I felt like what Goffman explained was why in social settings, I might not draw attention to things that one of you two does that sort of breaks from the social script that might be embarrassing even if it's only embarrassing to you, there's a reason for me to stay sort of like either ignore it or stay quiet about it if I know about it and others can't see it. And that gave me this sort of like, oh, here's a reason for a conspiracy of silence. Here's a reason why two actors, when one sees the other do something that they shouldn't be doing, stays quiet about it. And that was what was so puzzling about that that um, aspect of the Korean War it was not so much why the Soviets went in secretly. That was fairly straightforward to understand it was why the americans when they discovered it didn't say anything about it and the degree of information control that required within the u.s government i was very curious to see how wide that information within the u.s government was shared but then what was the political logic the strategic logic for keeping that information silent and i saw that family resemblance and that sort of i'll stay quiet about the other side so like Thomas might have a coffee stain on his shirt. And I don't want to point it out in front of you two because then everyone's bringing attention to it. That's right. And so you both choose to stay silent about it. Exactly. And you're saying that that's what happened during the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. They yeah. both kept quiet about military actions that were going on. A lot of things, right. So it's, it's not everything that was going on that they, you know, there were times when they would call one another out. So one of the challenges of building the argument of the book is to try to parse those two situations. When is a situation where it's kind of safe to to point out the coffee stain and one's a situation to not point it out. And so, you know, so I basically argue that there are some situations where, you know, the coffee stain, to continue the analogy, is, is <laughs> so disruptive mm -hmm. to point that out or begs for a reaction that would sort of dangerously spark a potential escalation cycle, that those are the situations that you're especially likely to see adversaries stay quiet about what one another is doing. And it gives rise, as I talk about in the book, to you know, uh, a sort of covert aspect of a lot of the major wars during the Cold War, and I, and I argue also um, before and after, where there are, you know, there's a conflict that everybody knows about, but it's sort of bounded geographically and in other ways. And it's when 
you know, you cross some of those really important thresholds that are limiting the war, that's when it's really dangerous to to publicize it because that potentially unravels those limits on the war. And and so secrecy can be a sort of interim measure to, to keep it under control. So you're saying these governments who are engaged in covert conflict often keep the conflict away from their own public yeah, that's one of the interesting parts of the story. So, you know, especially for a democracy mm-hmm. and, and to connect it to the Korean War, this was the concern in the U.S. was that they had whipped up hawkish anti-communist opinion in part to sell the Korean War mm-hmm. uh, as it was publicly portrayed. Mm-hmm. They needed to do that, but they couldn't whip it up too much. They, they couldn't kind of unleash a hawkish domestic mood to uh, to too high of a level or they would have a war with the Soviets on there. They would have calls for... Uh, you know, an aggressive war with the Chinese before that had happened in the Korean War and then with the Soviets, even after the Chinese had come in. And so it, it was a, a sort of managing domestic politics for the United States that is an important part of that story and an important part of the story in the, in the overall theory. So one one more follow-up, trying to tie it back to civil-military relations. And Dr. Stanley, feel free to jump in on this as well. Um, on this podcast and when we talk about civil military norms, we tend to think that the public should know like what its military is doing. Uh, there should be accountability in a democracy. But in your work, is there a case for not prioritizing those things? Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the things I struggled with uh-huh. as um, because I have a, a, a deep commitment, not necessarily out of a civil military tradition, mm-hmm. but just sort of as a sort of small D Democrat. That you know, popular consent is something that that uh, at least in our government is, is super important to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I felt like was that all of like a, a sort of general scholarly commitment to that norm in their personal lives had probably created some gaps in scholarship where we where we may not have thought about the reasons why secrecy was valuable or justified. And rather than ignore that, I felt like I need to, to make the argument as I saw it, put down the theoretical logic as I understood it, lay out the history as the way I thought it should be portrayed, and then have a sit there and wrestle with it. Is this an exception? Is this a case where, you know, it really is best to have a lack of, of public knowledge? Or at least are these situations in which that, you know, in retrospect may have been a good thing? Uh, it's a dangerous thing to admit those exceptions, and, and oftentimes those get exploited and over over abused, but... That is something that I, I put in, out in the book as something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think this raises a broader set of questions. So so I'm thinking about this in the case of India, where we've started to see political parties, uh, especially the ruling party, kind of campaign on foreign policy, national security in particular. So there was a big election campaign in May in India, and the government won resounded re-election, playing a very hawkish, hardline stance on Pakistan, on Kashmir. And so on the one hand, that's, you know, you want the public, you want politicians engaged on national security issues, right? You, you sh- These are important. They should have the citizenry's attention. On the other hand, there's this danger, right, which is demagoguery, hawkishness that kind of gets out of control through these domestic logics, right, where you, you keep ramping it up, right? You keep am- upping the ante, and then the next crisis happens. And you've told your citizenry, like, we're going to hit them twice as hard next time. Well, then next time happens. And do you feel under political pressure well, yeah, we've got to hit them twice as hard. Or are there ways to get out of that? To say, well, actually, this is a little bit different and conditions have changed, so maybe we can back down. But I think there is this really deep tension that in different ways Austin and I both wrestle with. Like, what exactly is the place of security, the role of the military intelligence in a democratic polity? And I think the answer to that is often really ambiguous and complex and kind of loaded rather than simple and straightforward. So following that line of comparing 
the U.S. and other countries around the world, whenever we talk about CivMil outside the U.S., there's a tendency to focus on things that are really extreme, um, military coups, military dictatorships. But CivMil and the rest of the world is a lot more nuanced than just that. So when you study CivMil relations around the world, what aspects or features are you generally looking at? Yeah, so I mean, I think some of them definitely travel or, or are relevant to the U.S. case. Some are a little bit different. Um, so in general, you know, you want to understand if the military is reaching outside of its domain into electoral politics, right? Um, so are generals endorsing politicians, like serving generals, right? Or the military establishment itself actively or, or tacitly? How is the military being funded? Are, are its revenue sources kind of above board and invisible? Is it clear what's being spent and where it's coming from? Or are there murky military businesses, conglomerates, military-owned corporations that are kind of a little little hazy, a little sketchy, to, to say the least, right? Uh, we also want to know, are civilians reaching into militaries? Um, so a big issue, not necessarily in the United States, though, though potentially it could be, but certainly in other countries, is politicians reaching into the chain of command and kind of having favorites and playing you know, factional politics within the military to kind of elevate one general way ahead of where he should be based on political loyalties, right? And this can drive or contribute to factionalization within a military. Um, so kind of what is the role of the military with regard to the political system? Where does the military get its money? And then what does the political system try to do to the military? And what are the consequences of that? I think are things that some are relevant to the US, others are maybe we think of as a little more extreme, but are kind of part of, you know, the normal, normal, you know, in air quotes, um, civil military relationships in some other countries. So political endorsements, funding, civilian involvement in the chain of command. Are there any cases in particular that illustrate some of those concepts? Yeah, so I mean, it can go, so on the first one, I can go well beyond like just a general endorsing or the military endorsing. And in, in countries like Pakistan, Myanmar, you have militaries that reach into the formally distinct civilian legal system, the judiciary, uh, press censorship, or at least kind of pressures that emerge that are not like necessarily formal censorship, but are ways of influencing the playing field. This can also involve things like vote rigging or giving money to candidates. So there's just a whole bunch of ways that a politically minded military can play games within civilian politics, even if there are elections and there are candidates and there's a formally independent judiciary. So you don't need to be in a world of kind of, you know, tanks marching on the president's house and, and seizing the country, though that's important too. There are all these other more nuanced ways of kind of tilting the playing field toward the military's favored um, you know, set of, of clients in civilian politics. Um, so that is actually, I think, to me, the most interesting. It's like, what are the games militaries play short of a formal coup um, that, that are some of the indicators that, that I look at in particular. And how would you say your research in that area of comparative civil-military relations um, sheds light on the American case? So, I mean, I think it, it, it reflects this persistent or at least in the last couple of years, at least. But but going back before that, you guys have talked about this in previous podcasts. Like, what is the place of the U.S. military politically? Everybody says they respect it. You know, it's one of the, the I think it's the most trusted institution or certainly one of the mm -hmm. most trusted institutions. And so are there conditions under which somebody like President Trump would try to wrap themselves in the flag and kind of hug the military close, right? He has his generals. What does that mean, right? Does that send a signal to the U.S. population that kind of the military is tacitly endorsing? And then what can the military do about that? You could imagine ambitious generals trying to get ahead by, you know, playing favorites with Donald Trump. You can imagine others who are very worried about that and try to kind of pull back, but then run into this other norm, which is civilians are dominant in the American system and they should be. So just how far can you actually push the line in resistance? And once you do, is that actually undermining 
other key norms of the American democratic system, which is that officers are supposed to salute and obey orders. So, you know, a lot of my research isn't strictly speaking on civil military relations, but this this does remind me of sort of a, of a parallel um, discussion that goes on regarding the relationship between intelligence and, and um, political leaders. And it's something I've been thinking about um, in, in trying to prepare uh, uh, something for a, a blog on the replacement of Dan Coates as the director of national intelligence with at the time, it was when it was announced, it looked like it was going to be a strict loyalist to Trump, but it may be someone a little bit more subtly loyal. But it gets into this uh, sort of lesser-known discussion and analysis of of sort of intelligence policy relations and the degree of independence. And I think that's uh, a, a, a parallel in particular in terms of the current administration and the degree to which senior leaders in the intelligence community sort of occasionally break with the president regarding some of his more idiosyncratic views about things like the risk of uh, election disruption or the likelihood of North Korean denuclearization or whether they're just not a threat anymore somehow. And it's it's really interesting the degree to which the White House and this, you know, sort of there's the internal battle over, over personnel and who is in, in these whole offices and how much dissent can be tolerated and in what way. And I think it, we're really at a, it's one of the most interesting, if, if, if not also sort of normatively troubling periods right now in seeing uh, whether, you know, people will stand up uh, from within the administration to, to part ways at times or not. And I think that's an interesting case of that uh, with respect to intelligence and policy. So the intel side of the house shows us a parallel of what happens when you politicize an agency or set of agencies that are generally non-political. And then looking outside of the U.S., these other countries and their civil relations can show us an example of what happens when the case gets really extreme. We're not even that really extreme. Right. Just so different. You know, it can cut in two directions. So what I was talking about earlier a lot was militaries reaching out into the political system. But now we can flip this. And there are cases outside the U.S. where civilian leaders reach into militaries, not just to kind of pick their favorite general, but basically make them parts of the regime. Right? Not like they are loyal to the Constitution, whoever the commander-in-chief is, they salute and obey, but they become part of patronage networks, they become linked to political parties, financially they're tied to shared business interests. And so you can get this, so there's there's one side which is a kind of rogue military doing its own thing, but then the other is a military that's brought under the kind of personalized or political party control of the leadership of the country. Right, And this, I think, is something that when we think about a country like China, right, it's a very different, it's, it's the army of the party. Right. And it obeys the party. So it's a very different civil military relationship. And, and so you see, you could have a party dominant regime, or you could also have a personalistic one. Think of Maduro in Venezuela and what he's been doing with his military or Erdogan in Turkey, who's kind of ripped apart what was previously very autonomous and Praetorian military and kind of reshaped it over the last decade and a half in very dramatic ways. So I think a lot of what we're talking about here is this Goldilocks problem. There are two extremes, both of which are problematic. And then finding yourself kind of just right in the middle becomes really hard in these very polarized, very tense, low information environments like we're facing in the U.S. today. Yeah, just one other thing I wanted to sort of add on on civil military relations and, and some of the research I'm doing is it's it's an interesting special case in thinking about how civilians exercise control over the military when it's a regarding unacknowledged and unpublicized military operations. So in the book, one of the things I cover to, to a, a fair amount of length is the American military operations in Laos during the Vietnam War. And there you sort of have uh, the typical question of various mechanisms of civilian control over the military, but then you also have the requirement 
of secrecy or after it's been at least on the New York Times a few times, at least unacknowledged military activity. And it, it gave rise to some really interesting um, bureaucratic battles where the declassified materials now show how much military leaders chafed under the control and restrictions that the ambassador in Laos was putting on the operations. And for weird, quirky reasons, because Laos was a, a technically neutral country that the U.S. wanted to respect, respect that neutrality, we didn't have the typical military advisory group and military control over military operations in Laos. And so you had a civilian, not just a civilian, a, a diplomat, uh, you know, really, <laughs> really problematic maybe, um, who was calling the shots and saying literally how many kilometers, you know, you, you could do a cross-border raid into Laos. And it's, you can imagine quickly how military leaders would say, you know, we want a few more kilometers and we want a few more, you know, a little bit more fire, firepower to protect our troops or whatever. And that happened a lot. So there's interesting internal stuff that, that emerges in these covert um, forms of military activity, which I would imagine are still relevant given the importance of, of, of special forces and special operations now. And then there's also interesting external like sort of, you know, um, civilian control vis-a-vis the legislature. How does that happen when you have um, when you're using and resorting to covert uh, forms of military activity? And I think we're seeing some of these dynamics both in Syria and Afghanistan, right? Where in Syria, there's the, this whole, you know, Trump says we're getting out, and then all of a sudden there's kind of slow rolling, and a leak start emerging. Well, maybe we're going to leave some people, and then all of a sudden the withdrawal doesn't actually happen. And there's this bureaucratic def- policy that kind of manages to, to keep you closer to the status quo. In Afghanistan, there's been a lot of bureaucratic battles between DOD and, you know, the president and state and Zalmay Khalilzad's wandering all over the place. And so it's not clear, like, what in God's name is going to happen or whose exact wishes that reflects. Like, like we know what Trump wants. It's not clear what we're going to get and what the relationship between what Trump wants and what we're going to get is and if that's good or bad, right? So we're just in this very murky world of resistance that's often bureaucratic. It's often not voiced, but instead it's through things that don't happen. Or if it is voiced, it's through leaks or through friendly members of Congress, you know, friendly to opposition factions saying this. Um so any yeah, just to add, like we are deep in this world right now. It's not just a relic of you know the nineteen sixties Cold War proxy stuff. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it makes me also think about how members of Congress don't even know where our forces are deployed, um, particularly with the special operations forces in Niger. Um, after having been killed, then members of Congress said, "I didn't even know we were there." Yeah. So when we talk about civil military tension or these bureaucratic politics in the United States, we generally aren't talking about the possibility of an imminent military coup. Um, That's not something we worry about or think about. But in other countries where it does get to the point where the military or an intelligence apparatus kind of unties itself from civilian control, how does it get to that point? Well, I mean, that... is a great question. We, there's no single answer to it. Mm-hmm. I wish, like, I you know, I'd be making a lot more money if I came up. <laughs> uh, probably not that much more money. Like, nobody really cares. But um, if you know, if there there is no single answer to that, but there are a couple kind of dynamics we can look at. Um, one is, do militaries have their own sources of resources and clout outside of kind of civilian purse strings? Right. So in Pakistan, the 1950s, the Pakistani military basically reaches out to the Americans and says, "Hey, look, we want to be your Cold War buddy." Right. You know, we're strategically located. We're fiercely anti-communist. We'll be kind of good, hardy Muslim warriors against the godless communists. Right. 
And all of a sudden, the Americans now are kind of helping out the military, right? And this is a, accentuates an already existing civil military imbalance. So sources of resources um, is, is one kind of problem. Um, a second is kind of an imbalance in cohesion. So militaries, at least supposedly, right, are supposed to be highly disciplined, hierarchical. You know, they, they're supposed to act as a single institution. Now, often that doesn't happen. So there are plenty of militaries that are deeply factionalized. Uh, they're divided ethnically. They're divided by academy class. They're divided by political ideology or whatever. But when you do have a relatively cohesive military facing off against a deeply divided set of civilian politicians, two things start to happen. One is the military has more opportunities to kind of present itself as the guardian of the nation, the only competent people compared to these squabbly, corrupt, incompetent politicians. So that's one thing. But two, the squabbly politicians may start reaching out to the military to act as a power broker that can help them win their rivalries with uh, opposing civilian factions. And then things can get very dangerous because you see civilians, whether elected or bureaucrats, trying to ride the tiger and kind of control a military that may have its own interests, right? So those are kind of the two two of the dynamics that I pay particular attention to is like, who, where is money coming from mm-hmm. and political clout at the international or domestic level? And then second, what's kind of the balance of cohesion and organization between these different sets of actors? I mean, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, I think for an extreme measure like a, a coup, there has to be the foreclosing of alternative, less radical methods of changing policy and changing, you know, political priorities. And I think that's, when you think about the American case, um, that's one way to think about perhaps one of the virtues of the system and the reason why we don't think a coup is particularly feasible or, or necessary is that hopefully there are mechanisms for the expression of, of disagreement and the redirection of policy if uh, if a military or intelligence bureaucracy feels strongly about something that that allow that to happen short of a coup and that would be you know if i were to research in this area that'd be something that would be interesting to me is to look at a comparative perspective of what those safety valves are like is it informal contacts with members of congress who then blow the whistle through the congressional oversight system which then changes policy um and, and that you know sort of kind of have that sort of with the, the Vietnam War in mind is, is potentially one explanation for how something doesn't get too out of control. But there are these sort of like, I think, less um, sort of dramatic and and some behind the scenes means of course correction, which in systems outside the United States might not exist for various reasons and might explain why sort of disagreement builds and builds. And then the only solution is a complete change in leadership rather than some of these more modest efforts. I think that's really interesting. So you're saying that there could be civil military tension or pressure that builds up, but in the United States, there's sort of other ways for that pressure to release other than through overt military aggression against the government. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, it'd be interesting to like even just spitball right now about what those might be. The one, so one I'm suggesting is sort of A, you have a division of power between the executive and the legislative, but B, you also have contacts, the ability for, Mm -hmm. um, you know, military brass or or constituents um, with military affiliation to contact members of Congress and trigger that in a kind of fire alarm um, sort of mechanism from from American politics um, scholarship. But, you know, another one that comes to mind is resignations. Mm -hmm. You know, if if it comes to a point where, where, um, you know, a a general or, or another military leader thinks things are really going sideways. There's there's some a very dramatic um, and, and if done in, in the right way, a potentially impactful, politically impactful way of pulling their own alarm directly rather than working through Congress. So there might be other ways, but those are two that come to mind for me. So I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think 
it is important, though, to keep in mind that there are plenty of militaries that have an organizational kind of culture and attitude that's very different than the U.S. militaries, right? They're not looking, you know, a military like the Burmese military is not like, oh, boy, it would be nice if we had, you know, interlocutors on the civilian side with whom we could engage in moderate incremental reforms in our direction, right? <laughs> They're like, look, like democracy is potentially a huge threat to the stability of the nation and the primacy of the military, right? So I think there's also an internal dynamic that we need to take mm-hmm. seriously here, which is what is the military taught about itself? How do generals view their role within the state and the nation? And I think the answer to that really affects whether these other mechanisms matter, right? Because if you have a military that basically thinks it's the guardian of the nation and, you know, congressmen are a bunch of corrupt clowns and the electorate can't be trusted because it's swayed by momentary mass mob passions, then I think you're going to get a very different set of answers about whether these institutional mechanisms work or not. So the the kind of social institutional underpinnings, the, the norms and principles that hold it in place yep. are what trigger the pathways in which the mechanisms go. I I think that's at least part of the story, right? How does the military view itself, its political role, its ideological project? These are all things that they're not like a single cause of anything necessarily, but I think they run into these institutional and broader political factors in some really important ways. And I think, you know, building on some work in international relations that constructivists have done on the roles of norms and the effects of norms. I mean, first, this is a question of organizational culture which is itself an aggregate of a bunch of different norms about a bunch of different things. But one of them is, you know, sort of the appropriateness of irregular leadership changes or intervention in the political uh, arena. And that's something that's clearly, you know, deeply built into and ingrained into the American military um, organizational culture is that there are, you know, follow the chain of command or maybe break the chain of command under exceptional circumstances, but, you know, don't go overthrow the leader, you know, like respect civilian authority. So in, in, in terms of what those, those, those cultures do, you know, that research has oftentimes focused on the way it doesn't necessarily determine action in a sort of predictive way, but it can take options off the table. So I completely agree with Paul that if you have a different military organizational culture, then, you know, one of the options might be, okay, let's seize power like we did 15 years ago when things were bad. And so for an American military, you know, uh, organizational culture, one might posit that their, you know, successful, you know, indoctrination or socialization into that culture takes the coup sort of off the table as as a reasonable policy or response. But then which they choose among those when there is disagreement or dissent, then you get into everything from resignation to more subtle means of policy influence to just lobbying through the interagency process, which would be, you know, sort of the standard way to do it. And something in the American case that I'm kind of, I don't know, interested is is a cold way of saying, like, potentially deeply concerned about. But (laughs) so one thing that can happen is that social divisions kind of seep their way into the military, right? Or the military becomes reflective or part of these kind of broader culture and political wars. Um, The French Third Republic is a good example where the military kind of, or at least parts of it were aligned with the right versus the left, highly polarized. And I worry a little bit that as the U.S. has become incredibly politically polarized and as the American military officer corps has become pretty heavily Republican, I don't know the statistics, but that's, you know, kind of disproportionately Republican, you get into a world not where there would be a coup, but where let's say a Democrat comes into office and the military leadership kind of looks at that person. And I mean, some of this happened with Clinton a little bit. and It's like, huh, you know, Trump was problematic, but this person is problematic in different ways. And what kind of options for slow rolling things, for kind of t- using Congress to, to block the president, for kind of bureaucratic processes, then kick in, where you get a different kind of dynamic. Um, that's something that, you know, I don't want to catastrophize about, but at least it's something to pay attention to if political polarization in the U.S. continues and is manifested in some ways within the, the leadership of the U.S. military. 
We'll be back after this short break. Chicago, the windy city, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. This is Chicagoland. What do you think the future of CivMill around the rest of the world looks like? Where are the trends going? Okay, uh, I don't have an answer to that, but let me tell you some trends. Okay. Right? Um, one that is different than the classic coup model is going back to, so I talked about there are these two extremes. One is kind of the military breaks loose and goes rogue, but the other is regimes bring militaries to heal and use them in part as domestic political tools. I worry more about that latter kind of the global level as we think about democratic erosion, the rise of populism, uh, kind of different kinds of digital authoritarianism. Those regimes have the military as one of their political tools, both symbolically, right, as the symbol of the nation that also supports the regime, and sometimes also as kind of a backstop to preserve the regime in the face of domestic unrest, right? Think of Tiananmen, right, and, and dynamics like that where the military gets sent into the streets, or even just the threat of the military hangs in the background, right, and influences how protesters think. And I think you know, we've seen in cases like Egypt what happens when a military really decides to crush civilian opposition to its rule um, in very bloody and dramatic fashion. So I worry places like Turkey, places like China, um, that these dynamics kind of have made the military less of a rogue actor and more of a, a pawn of regimes. Um, so that's one thing. I also, to, to argue against myself, there was this book that was published, I don't know, in 2000 or something. Um, it was an edited volume that was like the decline of the role of the military in Asia. Right. And it was basically this like, look, coups are going away and everything is fine. So there is, however, a trend of militaries reasserting themselves, at least in Asia and the Middle East or parts of the Middle East, like, you know, Egypt being the classic case. And in Asia, we've seen military coups in Bangladesh in two or kind of a weird quasi coup in 2007 in Pakistan in 1999. But still, even after the military has withdrawn, it's still very important as a political actor. Same in Burma or Myanmar, Indonesia. It's kind of creeping back in right after it looked like we'd seen kind of full and formal democratization. And so we're seeing these cases that are not maybe the classic kind of strongman coups of the Cold War, but in which militaries have managed to preserve some degree of autonomy and political influence and are still very much in the political game, even if they're not directly ruling. So those are kind of one. The first is the military becomes a pawn of a authoritarian or illiberal democratic regime. The second is the military you know, is still hanging around and it's doing things, it's tilting the playing field in ways that are worrisome for democracy. My thinking about the future, you know, subject to the same caveats that Paul gave, which which is this is an incomplete um, forecast. But one thing I thought would be interesting to think about, or I think it's interesting interesting to think about, is how the way warfare is changing might affect the relationship between the civilian and military um, institutions in different countries. And so, you know, sort of in, in in the sort of zone of my own research, you know, a lot of people are drawing attention to behavior by Russia, behavior by China. Um, and, you know, the American sort of migration towards um, special operations, where it's whether you call it hybrid warfare or gray zone conflict, both of which I'd appreciate if we just flush down the toilet. But, um, <laughs> but it said you just use both of them. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, with, with, yeah, with instructions. Um, 
But whatever you want to call it, what is interesting is, you know, you look at like the, the Wagner group with, um, with the Russians. You look at these sort of like maritime patrols by, not by uh, the people, you know, not by the Chinese Navy, but by sort of like a merchant marine or so. So you have a shift towards unacknowledged or um, sort of commercially or, or privatized ways of using, uh, engaging in military activities or using military force. Well, what does that do for civil military relations and is the sort of the systemic and technological trends that are pushing warfare away from traditional conventional conflict uh, at least that's my view uh, as, as part of the causes of that is that going to have some sort of unintended sort of spillover effects where you're now engaging in war or military activities in a different way and then that doesn't those activities are no longer governed by the same norms and political structures that um, that manage um, um, traditional military operations. And this goes back to this Niger point, right? The U.S. has military forces all over the world doing all kinds of stuff, right? It's hard. I think most citizens don't really have a great sense of where and what those activities are. Members of Congress don't either. So what, what does that do for accountability, oversight, also accountability and responsibility on the part of civilians, right? It's their job to be keeping an eye on what's going on and making sure the military is being used appropriately and service members are not being put in undue risk. So it's this dual kind of responsibility. So I worry about that along the lines that Austin's talking about. Kind of going in the other direction, I simultaneously worry as we kind of ramp up kind of the, the new era of great power competition, we're getting into some pretty wild and crazy stuff, especially in the Pacific, where you have mass, you know, highly lethal military forces that can unleash extraordinary amounts of lethality in a very short period of time. You're kind of competing with China, you've got, especially as we move toward missiles, ground launch cruise missiles, possibly, like things are just going to look really wild and crazy as these military forces get built up in the Western Pacific. And that gets you into all kinds of kind of Cold War era questions as well. Like who's in charge of responding to provocations? How does escalation happen? Who manages that? And if things go horribly wrong, like how do you de-escalate, right? How much authority do you delegate to, to theater commanders or even local commanders? What happens when missiles start flying? You've got you know two minutes to make decisions about what you do next. So there's this, I think we actually face this really complicated threat environment where on the one hand, we've got mercenaries, proxy war, gray zone, special forces, fifth generation, whatever. But then we've also got like, we're gonna be building hypersonic missiles and like doing crazy stuff at kind of the high end conventional bleeding into implications for nuclear strategic stability at the same time within the same military establishment instead of security competitions. So, like, that's a little bit worrisome. Yeah. And I think one of the, the things that I learned from doing research on the sort of sustained covert military operations over multiple years in potentially explosive conflict environments is that, A, I, I came into it and left it convinced that escalation dynamics are very tricky, are driven by a range of, of variables um, and dynamics that can be difficult to control. And that's clearly comes across in, the, in my first book as, as a concern. Uh, but B, that um, maintaining uh, limited war is hard to do, and it requires this kind of unifi unification of activity and action on the ground and decisions up at the way up at the top. And to Paul's point about delegation in the field and, and sort of tactical military authority, and you know, the thing I saw time and again is is leaders struggling to maintain control over the kinds of operations that were taking place, either overt or covert, uh, because there is this, um, there's this temptation uh, when you're trying to win a war to do what you can to win. And that is sometimes in conflict with the restraints that you need to keep 
a crisis as a crisis or a limited conflict as a limited conflict. And so when I think about East Asia, security competition, uh, competition involving China and the United States, some kind of hypersonic missile crisis or something, those kinds of scenarios, I think the, the, the sort of hand-in-hand relationship between civilian and military is going to be important to the extent that those need, if we want to keep those limited. And just to kind of, I mean, one thing to add here is, so, so there's basically this problem of civilian oversight, right? You want it, but you don't want too much of it, okay? And one area in which militaries say, look, this is our sovereign domain is, is actual operational plans for war fighting, like how we are going to kind of put lethal force on particular targets in particular ways. And civilians often don't know anything about these topics or not much. And they trust the militaries, and militaries have much more credibility in this domain, and they should because they're the professionals, right? But you can get this mismatch where civilians don't really know what would happen in the early stages of a crisis or a war. The military has its plans, and they're very technical, and you know we're going to be ranging such and such, you know, sorting this and whatnot. And they're like, trust us, we're, we're, we're military professionals. And civilians are like, yeah, yeah, whatever, okay. And then all of a sudden stuff starts happening, and civilians start to either realize their options are more constrained than they'd realized, right? Or they realize that things are happening that might be slipping out of their control. So actually, to take this to a non-U.S. case, um, in India, the, the military is under tight civilian control. But basically, since India lost the 1962 war with China, there's been a norm that the military is in charge of war fighting. All right, And so the critique has emerged, at least among some scholars, that Indian civilian policymakers don't actually know enough about what their militaries what their military is able to do and, and would do in a crisis situation because they've kind of ceded the operational, the kind of hard military side of war to the military so as not to be seen as overly meddling, so as not to be seen as excessively interventionist like happened in 1962. And so there are some, I mean, I guess this is just kind of a pitch for civilians trying to understand military dynamics, right? Not to be meddling like Lyndon Johnson in the basement, you know, picking places to strike with air power, but at least have some sense of what militaries do, how they talk, what options are available, what capabilities these militaries have, because otherwise you can get at some really hairy dynamics very quickly. As we talk about those dynamics in both of your areas of research, what do you make of the, I guess, the rise of cyber warfare and its murky relationship with traditional war? Well, I'm still fairly new to cyber, and, and I often t- I've, I've done a few events um, and participated in some conversations, and I always start with the I'm the idiot in the room, but I can tell you about the covert stuff, you know, the covert, the covert aspect of it. You know, to me, the, you know, the main thing that I would emphasize is that I think there is a very clear distinction between kinetic effects and, you know, cyber disruption or cyber attacks. And that, you know, as wild west, uh, as wild west feeling as, as it has in, in the cyber domain, and I really think there are, there's tons of ambiguity uh, and sort of experience to be gained in the sort of uh, intra-cyber space um, uh, rules of the game, basically. I take a measure of, of optimism from the fact that I think that there is just something so intuitively clear about the difference between cyber and traditional conventional military or cyber with kinetic effects. And that I think those distinctions are... Um, are ones that states grasp and leaders grasp and, and the adversary of those leaders grasps. And so um, I tend to be a non-alarmist when it comes to what the sort of larger strategic consequences of cyber competition are. Now, that is not to say that it's really not important to to compete in that space, that, that the rules of the game within that space need to be fleshed out, that dynamics of attribution and exposure and 
and oversight for that matter of, of um, cyber operations by the United States isn't really important, but it is to me uh, important to sort of step back and say the new shiny tool in the shed isn't necessarily like the end all be all and, and, and there are important reasons I think it won't necessarily get out of hand uh, even if it escalates within that space. Yeah, I don't know anything about cyber, so that that all sounded perfectly plausible to me. But you know, I I operated a much lower tech set of questions, so I got nothing. So we've mentioned worries about uh, conventional warfare and escalation, and what we do once operations actually begin. We've mentioned worries also on the other side, as the lines of war get blurred, and there's this more hybrid warfare going on. Another thing that a lot of people are worrying about, or at least hesitant about is this U.S. peace deal with the Taliban going on right now. Uh, and the Afghan government has largely been sidelined from those negotiations. I'm curious what your take on the situation is, whether you think we should expect stability from this. Uh, should we expect stability? Probably not. It's possible. So, so let me give you a good case and then kind of a more likely case. So a good case is we cut a deal with the Taliban, but we engage in conditionality where we say, look, you know, you guys need to do these things or else we'll stop withdrawing or we'll go back to, you know, military operations. Under the pressure of the American withdrawal, the Kabul government kind of is willing to make a deal. The Taliban see they've got the Islamic State rising as kind of a radical alternative. The Pakistanis and the Chinese and the Russians and whoever else kind of help shepherd this through. And you get some kind of rough power sharing deal of some sort that kind of holds together. So that's you know it's possible. I think that's the that's the goal, right? It, it is noteworthy though that the U.S. so far, based on the leaks, and so we don't really know what's going on, but is really emphasizing kind of U.S. withdrawal and Taliban assurances about Al Qaeda or ISIS operations, and everything else is kind of like, well, you know, that'll come next, and we'll see what happens. So you could imagine a world in which the U.S. starts to withdraw. Trump just wants to get out, and so he's not willing to engage in conditionality of any sort. The Taliban may actually crack down on al-Qaeda. They're certainly already fighting the Islamic State branch in Afghanistan, but have no interest potentially in a ceasefire or a deal with the Kabul government. And you end up with one of these decent interval kind of situations in which I don't know if the Taliban actually take power or the whole thing just falls apart into large-scale warfare. But you could imagine some really bad outcomes here. And I think this president is not who I would want leading that. I think on the one hand, he's shown his resolve to get out, right? On the other hand, if you want to kind of shape a better deal on the way out the door rather than a worse deal, you also want somebody who says, look, or we could stick around for a little while, right? And I think Trump has made it clear that he wants out before the election. And so I think that has just kind of dropped a lot of the leverage the U.S. might have, even relative to a president who also wants to get out, but is kind of less like sprinting absolutely for the exits. So we have a lot of listeners who are fellow students here at Harris Public Policy. Um, and we also have students who listen to this podcast who are at the military academies or um, junior military officers. And we were wondering, based on your research, what are some things that you would want both of those groups of students to know? Future civilian policymakers, future military policymakers. So that's a really I- important question. There are you know, a million things we could say. I-, I think what I would urge people to understand is, is how integrative strategy is. And it's really important for anybody who sees themselves as a future policymaker or analyst or you know, even an academic, as useless as we are, to understand all the different things that go into strategy and the threat and use of military force. So that means understanding kind of nitty gritty military operational dynamics, means understanding bureaucratic politics, it means understanding kind of regional histories and why Japan and Korea right, or South Korea are having all these issues 
issues that maybe if you don't know the history would make no sense. So I think that leads us to think outside of these silos, you know, the intelligence community, the military, civilian policymakers, to think more broadly about all the way different pieces come together, in part because we've been talking a lot today about how when those things come out of alignment, when things get kind of disjointed, very bad unintended consequences can happen. There's always going to be some unintended consequences, some friction, but I think there are ways of, of keeping in mind the different moving pieces that, that can make those inevitable frictions less disastrous than they might otherwise be. Yeah, so I think it's... Um... It's a great question. And I, yeah, I'll go in the more, a more personal recommendation route. So I think my main recommendation is to try to always keep your expertise and your sort of the bureaucracy that you become a part of at arm's length. And I think the, uh, the way to do that for me or the specific way I'd recommend is read broadly. And so just like I said at the beginning about sort of the, the happy, um, coincidence in, in my academic career of, of reading a sociologist and relating their sort of analysis of dinner dinner table uh, social norms to something I was reading about the Korean War, I really feel like, especially for people entering public policy or in military service, it's very difficult to get perspective from outside the cultures that you become a part of and make, make a career in. And reading broadly, whether it's reading um, from sort of disciplines that seem further afield than the ones that you directly come into contact or if you're in the intelligence business, keeping, you know, to the extent that you can, uh, you know, sort of uh, in terms of your job security, keeping touch with people outside that world. Um, that's the thing I worry about the most. And I think uh, it is a loss of that. And I think, you know, it's a time when you're, you're in, a, in a master's program or you, you have a, a break in, your, in your, your military service for professional education that you can do that. But don't lose it when you go back into the day-to-day -day grind because it's... It's something that a that will be will distinguish you from your colleagues and will oftentimes I think be something that helps make you unique and better at what you do. And B, I think it helps you uh, avoid some of the the dysfunctionalities or the downsides of becoming part of a monoculture. And so if you hear people, you know, threat hyping the the problem of gray zone warfare or you know cyber's here, the sky is falling. Like those those things bother me. And I think you, you want to have voices from inside, not just you know, me coming on a podcast saying like, hey, let's keep this in perspective. And here's some reasons why this might not be the end of the world or this buzzword might actually just be, you know, sort of a, a recycled and repackaged something that a version of something that's been around for a while, which is useful, you know, for fighting for bureaucratic funds or getting attention for grand strategy challenges, but intellectually might need, uh, you know, a dose of, of um, a variety. And so that's my thoughts. And if I could just kind of pull some of those together, I think there are really strong incentives to specialize, whether you're in the military or in public service or in academia or anywhere else. And there are lots of advantages to that. But there are also some real disadvantages of becoming overly specialized because the world's constantly changing. Skills that were really useful 10 years ago may no longer be useful now. So you want to have kind of an intellectual reserve of kind of knowledge, the ability to reach outside of your specialization and kind of a a willingness and ability to pull in new information and kind of update yourself as the world changes or as your responsibilities change. Well, Dr. Austin Carson and Dr. Paul Staniland, thank you so much for that advice. I know Thomas and I will be taking it as we move forward in our careers. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Our pleasure. This yeah. was a lot of fun. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You For Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Ashwarya Kumar, 
and our publisher is Haz Yano. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. See you next time.